Let's pray. Our Father, we come to your word and asking that you will send your Holy Spirit to cause us to understand and to believe and to respond to your word. We would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Please open God's word with me where we were reading earlier, Luke 23. We read the, the text earlier today, so we'll be reading it throughout the sermon this morning. <clears throat> so often through the gospel, we've seen that Luke wants us to see Christ from other people's perspective, and he wants to see how people respond to Christ, to challenge us to think, how am I responding to Christ? Do I have that same response as these people do? And he's doing it again in, in this chapter 23. And he's showing us people that are being faced with the question, what will you do with Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate? What was Pilate's response to God incarnate? What was Herod's response to God incarnate? What was the women's response to God incarnate? Leading to the question, what's your response to God incarnate? We'll look at that this morning. So the first person that Luke wants us to see and and Look at how he's responding. Is What was Pilate's response to? What will he do with Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate? Let's read again verses 1 through 5 and then 13 through 16. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews. And he answered him, you've said so. And then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no fault in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. Verse 13, and then Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, and neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate's being set up to face this question, what will he do with Jesus Christ? Chapter 22 relates to us how Jesus was seized in the garden. And then he has three trials. It's first brought before the previous high priest, Annas, and then Caiaphas. And then again at 5.30 in the morning, he's back before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas for the third time. Now in chapter 23, Jesus is being brought before the Gentile courts. And he will also have three courts or hearings. He will be before Pilate. He will then be before Herod, and he'll be back before Pilate. It's probably around seven in the morning because the Roman courts began right at daybreak, and they were done by 10 in the morning. And so that's why the Sanhedrin was urgent to get this matter settled today, and today was Passover. So who is bringing Jesus to Pilate? You notice in verse 20, Verse 1, it's the whole company that comes. If you go back to chapter 2266, that means it's the whole Supreme Court. (laughs) Didn't that strike you? They are so determined in their hatred to see this man killed. By law, there was only one or two representatives that were needed to bring a matter before Pilate, but here's the whole Sanhedrin. 
And they're not content just to matter a few things. Verse 5, they're, they're bringing up his whole life. They're rejecting him completely. Everything that he has done, everything that he has taught, everywhere that he has lived. Isn't it curious, their charge before Pilate? What is their charge? Back in chapter 22, when he was before the Jewish trial, their reason then to conclude that he was deserving of death was that he claimed to be the son of God, which he is. And so on the grounds of blasphemy, they declared that he should die. But that's not anywhere here. You notice what they did when they come before Pilate, verse 2. They've changed the charges. Because in a Roman court, it's not a capital offense to claim that you were God. <laughs> Caesar himself saw him, called himself Lord. So this charge of blasphemy wouldn't hold up in a Roman court. And so they changed the charge to sedition, insurrection, claiming to be a king. And that would trigger something inside of Pilate because he, of all things, had to keep the peace. That's why he's even come down to Jerusalem to keep the peace during Passover. So it's a strategy. They're going to get Pilate to convict Jesus. And so this is why they bring Jesus to Pilate, to have him declare his death. They didn't need to. Now, it's true that they, the Jews lost their sovereign ability to execute capital offenses some 40 years before this. But if they really wanted to kill somebody, they would kill them. Look what they'll do to Stephen in just a few short months from here. It seems that they're afraid of the people. And if they put Jesus to death, boy, that's going to come back on them. So let's have a Roman do it. We already hate the Romans. And so they bring Jesus before Pilate. Don't think of this as an official court trial or official court record. This is not a court transcript. Jesus was not even entitled to a Roman trial. He's not a Roman citizen. And so Roman law would not apply to him. Pilate had all authority to simply hear the facts. And it was only up to him to decide the matter. The full decision was Pilate's. So Pilate's being set up to face this question. What will you do with Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate? But Pilate avoids the question. He avoids the question, first of all, because of who he is. Pilate's not from the Senate class. He's from military, lower Roman nobility. He was born in Spain. He was twice married. He abandoned his first wife so that he could marry Claudia, the granddaughter of Emperor Augustus, he's marrying into position and power, and that's why he was appointed as the prefect of Judea. He's a politician in the worst sense of the word. His whole goal is to get ahead, and he rules for 10 years, A.D. 26 through 36, and his whole goal in life is to promote himself and to keep the peace so that he can get ahead. He didn't like the Jews. They didn't like him. We have many records of his hatred toward them and their hatred toward him. One incident Pilate brought into Jerusalem, military symbols, which have symbols on their flags, which the Jews regarded as idolatrous. They resisted. He threatened to kill them, so they laid down and bare their necks, daring him to behead them. He didn't, but he sure lost face. Another incident, he outraged the Jews. He took some of their money out of the temple treasury to build an aqueduct 
That started a real rebellion, and he lost favor with Rome because of that. He, he can't keep the peace with Rome. He can't keep the peace in Jerusalem. He's got quite a balancing act. Jesus referred to another incident in Luke 13, where Pilate mingled the blood of the Galileans that had come down to offer in Jerusalem with their sacrifices. So Pilate and the Jews were enemies And here are the Jews accusing Jesus of sedition. He knows what they're doing. And he's going to save his own neck, even if it means the death of an innocent man. Pilate avoids facing this question of who Jesus is because of who Pilate is. Pilate also avoids the question because of who Jesus is. Pilate's not required politically to condemn Christ. There's nothing in history that says that Rome had to automatically rubber stamp any decisions that the Jews made about capital punishment. No, the Romans would look into the case themselves and they would decide on their own. There's no pressure from Rome or Roman law that Pilate had to go through with this accusation and requirement for the death penalty. There's no requirement that Pilate was, uh, had to respond logistically Yes, it was true that very often a trial happened where the crime was permitted, but it wasn't required to. And so here he's pulling this loophole. Well, Jesus is from Galilee. Let's get him out of here. Let's hand him over to Herod. He, didn't, he wasn't required to do that. Pilate had every right and to make this decision on his own. Pilate wasn't even required morally to condemn Jesus. He knew he was innocent. Verse 3 All the Gospels record the identical words to his question to Christ. It's hard to bring out in the English, but if you capitalize you, you get the sense. Pilate is saying, looking at Jesus, who has been beat up and bloody, are you a king? You've got to be kidding me, right? What are they thinking, bringing you as a king? It's, it's, It's dripping with sarcasm. You're a problem? And Pilate summarized it three times. Verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. Verse 14 and 15, I don't find this man guilty of any of your charges, and neither did Herod. Verse 22, I find no guilt in him deserving of death. Three times he testifies. Is is that maybe a reference to the three witnesses that are required in Deuteronomy 19? But he's desperate. He cannot face the truth of Jesus Christ. He would not commit to the truth. He tries three times to get Jesus released because he knows he's innocent. First, he tries to avoid the issue by sending Jesus to Herod. Let Herod deal with this. Herod, Pilate should just have simply dismissed the crowds, given Jesus safe passage out of the city, and finished the matter. And then he tries to avoid it by substituting Barabbas instead of Jesus. That didn't work so well. Then he tries, well, maybe I'll just beat him and whip him, and that'll be enough to satisfy them, and that didn't either. He was willing to compromise what he knew to be the truth to save his own skin, even if that meant the death of an innocent man. So he caves in to the Jews' demands to crucify Jesus just to save his career and his status, and he washes his hands, not to remove his guilt, but to go down in history as a record He knew that Jesus was innocent. 
You see the beautiful majesty here of Jesus Christ in the contrast to Pilate. Here's Pilate, the fearful, scheming ruler to do everything he can to keep his position, even murdering God incarnate. Contrast him to the Lord of glory, putting aside his position in order to die for us. He wouldn't even plead not guilty. There's also a very beautiful display here of the sovereignty of God and all of these details in the contrast between Jesus and Barabbas. Let's read again verses 18 through 25. And they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I find in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. We are so familiar with this account and the death of Christ that we assume we know why they're calling for crucifixion. But crucifixion is something that a Jewish mob would never have called for. Crucifixion is not Jewish, it's Roman. And besides, this death of crucifixion takes days. And this is Passover. They would have cried for beheading or hanging. Let's kill this man quickly and get it over with. Why are they crying for crucifixion? The answer comes because Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. So he, Pilate has this strategy. Well, I'll suggest releasing Barabbas because they know that he's a murderer. And that'll shame them. And that'll make them wake up to their senses. What are we doing? We don't want Barabbas released. Because he's a coward and he won't, he won't have to judge Christ. He, but Pilate's strategy backfires on him, <clears throat> simply playing to God's will. You see, crucifixion had been Barabbas' death sentence for execution. So when the crowd said, yes, we'll exchange Barabbas for Jesus, they simply added the death sentence for Barabbas onto Jesus. We will switch the men and we'll switch their sentence. They exchanged the death sentence onto Christ. So both the sentence and the condemnation were transferred to the innocent one. Crucify, crucify. That's what you would have done to Barabbas. Sentence him to die as you would the most vile of sinners. Do you see the irony? That's exactly what Christ is doing in going to the cross. 
the irony is that Barabbas is the guilty one, and he's pardoned. But the innocent one is condemned and takes his death sentence in his place. He's being charged with a death that's not his own. And it just can't believe the per- God's sovereignty and all of the details. The name Barabbas means son of the father. Jesus is the son of God the father. Sovereign God arranging all these supporting incidents to show us the truth of the gospel. Barabbas is not just an interesting side dressing. It's the very illustration of the work of Christ for those who will see it. And Pilate's question is the same one that you and I have to address. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? I think it was John Gerstner who said there's a huge difference between saying, I believe in God, to I believe God. Satan can say, oh, I believe in God. But there's no salvation to say that I believe in God. Pilate did. But do you say, I believe God. I believe Jesus Christ. I trust him that he is the way and the truth and the life. Pilate acknowledged the truth about Jesus. It's like somebody who, with with no personal trust, can recite the words of the Apostles' Creed. But there's all the difference in the world to reciting it and to actually trusting and believing and committing your whole life to Jesus as the truth, to his work alone, and to give your life to him. Do you only believe in Jesus Christ? Pilate did. Think about that. Or do you believe Jesus Christ and you've committed your life to him as the way and the truth and the life? He's your Lord. What was Pilate's response to the question that he was being faced? What are you going to do with Jesus Christ, God incarnate? Well, he he would not commit to the truth of Jesus Christ. There's a second figure that's being asked that question, and that's Herod. What will you do with Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, verses 6 through 12? Let's read those again. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enemy enmity with each other. Herod's also being set up to face this question, what's he going to do with Jesus Christ? Only Luke mentions this hearing before Herod, it seems to be. The reason is that, remember, he's writing this gospel to Theophilus, who was a Roman soldier, so he would have particular interest in hearing about Christ coming before Herod. And knowing Pilate, you can assume that he had an angle to all of this. He's going to have Herod deal with this political question. 
After all, he is his enemy. He's not, Pilate's not doing this out of any good favor. This is only for Pilate's advantage. I'm going to send Jesus over to my enemy. Let him deal with it. Perhaps there's even some calculation here because of Luke 13. We remember reading that Pilate had mixed the blood of some Galileans with their sacrifices. Well, Herod is the ruler of Galilee. So before I shed any more blood of a Galilean, I want Herod to deal with this matter and sign off on this matter. It's all calculating. Herod's being set up to face this question. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate? But Herod also tries to avoid the question because of, first of all, who he is. It can be quite confusing when you read Herod because there's five Herods mentioned in the New Testament. This is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great who killed the babies in Bethlehem after the visit of the wise men. This is now his son. When Herod the Great died, his territory was divided in three ways to this man, Herod Antipas, and his brother, and his half-brother, Philip. This Herod Antipas is very loyal to Rome. He's the one that built the city of Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee to honor the emperor. And he has stayed in position and power for 43 years, the whole life of Jesus' earthly ministry. That's no small feat. And he is an evil, evil man. He's the one that will behead John the Baptist. He's the one that will kill the apostle James, Acts 12. He's the one that schemed to have his half-brother Philip's wife, Herodias, and so he divorced his own wife. Herodias divorced her husband so they could marry. It was John the Baptist who called a spade a spade and said, you're living in adultery, calling them to repentance, and it ended up that Herod beheaded him. His life can be summarized, Luke 3.19, all the evil that Herod had done. He's an evil man. This is the man who's been wanting to kill Jesus. The Pharisees had warned Herod's trying to kill you. And Jesus had responded how? And Luke 13, 31, go tell Herod, that fox, that I will die in Jerusalem. Fox is a weak animal, but it's using cunning to get its way. Jesus is before two evil men, Pilate and Herod, but neither of these killers will sign off for the murder of Jesus, even though the people wanted it. Because they both knew that Jesus was completely innocent. He avoids facing the question because of who he is, and he avoids facing the question because of who Jesus is. He's in Jerusalem, verse 7. This is not his region, but he's there for Passover. He's there to nod his head, religious, personal advantage. Um, He's going to use this religious occasion to maybe make some points politically. And so when Pilate sends him over to him, verse 8 says, he was thrilled, very glad, excited, because he's been wanting to see Jesus in person for some time. Verse 8 says the word see three times. Boy, I've been looking forward to this. But what did Herod want? Herod wanted Jesus on his terms. Jesus, do a trick for me. Do a miracle for me. Do a sign for me. Show me some of your power. I've been wanting to see a sideshow. 
And all Jesus had to do was one small miracle. It would be nothing. And he would walk out a free man. But Jesus would not even speak to him. He's the only person Jesus said nothing. You can imagine how the the Jewish rulers are sweating this. They already know that Pilate's wanting, he's pushing back and doesn't want to do this. And if Jesus just does a small little trick, Herod's going to be happy and let the man go. They are sweating. All of our conniving and planning is about to go down and crash. We have got to persuade Herod to go ahead with us. And they're there, they're railing accusations against Jesus. And Jesus is quiet. What's, what's Herod's response? He's offended. Jesus won't do a trick for me. Well, who does he think I am? And he mocks him. That's his response. Verse 11, despise or contempt. He's going to have Jesus dressed, verse 11, with spectacular, literally the word is shining, clothing, splendor. It's the word that's used for how the angels are arrayed. Mockery is the best he can come up with. He's playing a bully. And the frightening irony here is that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He is the great king. But instead of worshiping him and bowing down before him, he wants Christ to bow down before him and do a trick for him. And he won't do it. And so Herod just mocks him. Herod wants to see a miracle. He's not interested in Christ's work or his person. He's not interested in the gospel. He's just interested in religion for personal benefit. Jesus will not stroke his ego to be liked and to be happy. And that's what Herod wanted. Appease me, Jesus. Do a trick for me. And sadly, Herod only wants what a lot of people today want from Jesus. Jesus, if you entertain me and make me happy, and if you answer my prayers, and if you give me my best life now, oh, sure, I'm reasonable. I'll follow you. I'll say I'm a Christian. That's the question. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ, God incarnate? Are you going to surrender to him on his terms, not yours? There's no benefit in having an interest in religion. A person can even call themselves spiritual. But at root, it's only if God continues to satisfy me and make me happy. And only if God gives me a religion where there's no obligations. I don't want Christ telling me how to live my life. I don't want him making demands that I have to crucify my life and carry up my cross and follow him. So if God's not going to make me happy, or if God's word's going to require me to do something that I don't want to do, or he's going to bring severe hardship into my life, I'm out of here. I won't serve this God. I deserve that God makes me happy and approves my desires. And as long as God will not do this, then I don't want this Christ. But isn't that the heart of a mercenary? I'm only in this for the advantage. That's what Herod was. That's Herod's response. I'll be happy if you do 
a miracle and make me happy. But Jesus calls his disciples to submit and to follow him because he dies for us and he gives us eternal life. Not because he's promised us in this life that it will be easy or that we'll get everything we want or there won't be any pain or sorrow. We'll have our best life now. He hasn't promised it. We will in heaven, in the new paradise, new heavens and the new earth. But today we obey him on his terms, not ours. That's what it means to follow Christ. God does not exist to make sinful, rebellious creatures happy. We exist for his glory. All we have received are his mercy. We've been brought to Christ for salvation. We're grateful for forgiveness. And our response is to surrender our lives to him and to obey him as our Lord and Master. And then we will know profound joy and blessing. But Jesus won't give Herod Antipas what he wanted even to save himself, and he won't give modern Herods what they want just so that they, he can win acceptance of him. He's not going to stroke anybody's ego. Jesus here is telling Herod, he's telling all the Herods of this world, if, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This whole chapter is just full of irony, and you see the irony again in this account. This day reconciled two enemies. Pilate and Herod were, had been enemies up to this point, but now they've become good friends. There were other enemies that were reconciled too, you know. It was through the death of Jesus Christ that we were reconciled to our enemy, God. It's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Romans 5.12 What was Pilate's response to the question, what will you do with God incarnate? He wouldn't submit to the truth. What was Herod's response? What are you going to do with God incarnate? He wanted Jesus on his terms. There's a third group, and that's the women's response. What will they do with God incarnate? Verses 26 through 31. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? It was the custom for each condemned criminal to carry their own cross. It was like a final indignity before their execution like a cat playing with a mouse wanting to prolong all this suffering. The only exception would be if they saw the, the criminal, and here's Jesus who's been whipped and he's been up all night and he's faced six trials. And they don't want him to die before they get to the cross. And so they want him to prolong this suffering. So they grab a man out of the crowd and force him to carry Christ's cross. And he's listed, Simon of Cyrene. He, at that time, was either a disciple of Christ or became a disciple of Christ. He has professed faith in his sons also. He's listed in the scripture as the father of Alexander and Rufus, Mark fifteen twenty one. Loud cr- crowd is following, which was the custom. 
Luke is the only one that records that the crowds are beating their chests, verse 48. Men never did this in public unless it was a situation of extreme sorrow and anguish. And Luke is also the only one that records these women that are weeping and Jesus turning and speaking to them. Jesus is not saying to them, you're wrong to weep for me. Right now, he's on his way to the cross where he will take the wrath of God for our sin. He will drink the cup of the wrath of God to its full so that he will grant forgiveness to all who come to him and trust in him. And he shows such love on the way to the cross and his weak, his concern is for these women. Not on himself. Christ is saying to them, first of all, there's no reason to pity me. My end is secure. After the cross is the resurrection and the ascension, and I will sit on the right hand of God the Father in honor. I'm not passive here, being manipulated by evil men. I'm not a powerless victim under the Rome or the Jews. I have not been overtaken by a fate which I've been unprepared for, as you will be. Christ's pity was for them. And again, he's reminding them that Jerusalem will be destroyed in AD 70. God's judgment is come. This is the same Jesus who on Palm Sunday, weeping for Jerusalem and Jerusalem's destruction, and he warned on that day of pregnant women on the day when the judgment will come. Jesus is using language here, very familiar to Jeremiah, who also warned of exile and judgment to come. He's quoting Hosea, chapter 10 here. Also his wife, Gomer, who left and went into judgment and exile and divorce. And Christ here is, is speaking as a prophet. The judgment of God is coming. What is this parable that Jesus is using about burning green, burning dry wood? Jesus here is connecting these two judgments by the Romans. The Romans are about to condemn Christ on the cross. AD 70, the Romans will come again and destroy Jerusalem. And if now the Romans are condemning an innocent man, Jesus, and taking him to the cross, and if that's green wood, because fire shouldn't be burning green wood, and judgment shouldn't be coming on an innocent man. And if this is how bad it is for judgment on an innocent man, What will the fire and the judgment be when it comes on dry wood? Deserving of fire, deserving of judgment. If I'm innocent suffering in this way, this time, what about you in the days to come, you who are guilty? What is Jesus doing? He is in mercy on the way to the cross. Mercy speaking to to his enemies and saying to them, repent to escape the wrath of God. Just as he said to Judas in the garden, Judas, in mercy, he says to him, Judas, are you sure you want to go through with this? Do you know what's ahead for you? He's speaking to the crowd that's mourning him. He's saying, don't mourn for me. The judgment of God is coming unless you repent. And he's urging them, repent now so that you will not see the wrath of God. There's many people today that like to have nice thoughts of Jesus Christ. Oh, sure, we'll celebrate Christmas and the sweetness of a birth of a baby. 
We like to follow Jesus' moral example and teachings. And on some level, there's a pity that an innocent man would go to the cross. But that's all it is, some generic allegiance. Of course I'm a Christian, born in America. Jesus doesn't want your tolerant, warm feelings for him. He wants your heart and repentance and faith. He wants your obedience as your Lord. And there's another judgment day coming, Revelation tells us, when the mountains, people will cry out for the mountains to fall on them. And then it will be too late. What's your response to the question? What have you done with Jesus Christ? Luke is writing to Theophilus. He's asking him this question. What have you done with Jesus Christ? He's asking each of us. What have you done with Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate? Every time you hear the scriptures, every time you hear the claims of Christ, you must answer that question. You can't avoid it. Oh, you'll try. But we each must come face to face with this most important question. Don't be a fool to ignore it. Consequences are eternal. History is full of people who made foolish decisions, and they regret them. Cole tells us some examples. An inventor named Alexander Graham Bell made an appointment with Western Union to sell them on the idea of something that he called a telephone. Western Union's president gave his answer, quote, no. What use could this company make of an electric toy? What a bad decision. A Michigan banker advised Henry Ford's lawyer not to invest in Ford's motor company, assuring him, quote, the horse is here to stay. The automobile is only a novelty. What a bad decision. A more recent inventor named Chester Carlson came up with a new machine. It was able to make copies of documents. He approached IBM. They told him they weren't interested. Kodak told him the same. Finally, Carlson approached a small company called the Haloid Corporation, which took the idea and renamed itself Xerox. People don't see the consequences of their bad decisions at the time. Both Pilate and Herod are now in hell. They didn't see the consequences of their decision at the time. Make the right decision. What have you done with Jesus Christ? Will you receive this gift of eternal life and confess, I believe in him? I believe him. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and I commit my life to him. I gladly give my life to him on his terms, not mine. Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we know that the danger of coming to familiar texts as this is that 
we can easily just assume, oh, I, I know this. But we really haven't engaged with the question. Our prayer today that each one under the hearing of the word will be answering that question in saving faith. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Thank you, our Father, that you, your power and strength is stronger than our, our own blindness. It's stronger than our own rebellion. And you are the God who grants repentance leading to life. We would ask that you would apply your word to us, that we might respond in faith and joy and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.